On the 27th of June 2020, Professor Gilbert Burnham addressed the United Nations Association Warwick District Branch on the subject, Has the Current Pandemic Damaged World Health Organization's Credibility as Guardian of Global Health? Um. I will tell you a bit about our speaker, who's already on the call. Uh, Professor Gilbert, Gilbert Burnham, Professor of International Health at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in Baltimore. Um, so he, it's an early morning for, for Gilbert, and I'm very grateful he's um, got up early on a, on a Saturday to uh, speak to us. And um, he is a professor of international health and he holds an MD from the Lorna Linda University, an MSc and PhD from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And he's also a fellow, fellow of the American College of Physicians. For 15 years, Professor Burnham has managed hospital and community health services in rural Malawi. During that time, he worked with the World Health Organization in research and subsequent treatment of river blindness in Malawi. After that, he joined the faculty of John Hopkins and he established the Center for Humanitarian Health. He has extensive experience of emergency preparedness and response, particularly in humanitarian needs assessments, program planning and evaluation of the needs of vulnerable population and the development and implementation of training programs. He also has extensive experience in development and evaluation of community-based health programs, planning, implementation, health information system development, management and analysis, and health system analysis. And he's worked with numerous humanitarian and health development programs. Uh, he's worked in uh, 18 years of program and research work in Afghanistan, 14 years in Iraq, and he worked on the Ebola outbreak in, in West Africa. So without further ado, I will hand over to Professor Burnham. Well, I'd like to say uh, hello to everyone and uh, good afternoon. And I'm uh, sorry I won't be there to enjoy your usual plowman's lunch, but I think that some of you will be uh, uh, not being able to enjoy it either. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the request, which was uh, talking about the World Health Organization. Uh, to say a little bit about its structure and its function and a bit about its history, uh, this is just to maybe bring everybody up to speed about uh, where it is now and, and how it got here. Uh, then uh, I think we'll say a little bit about what everybody's interested in now, and that's the coronavirus and uh, what the role of uh, WHO and uh, how it works with other organizations. So that's kind of an outline of where we'd like to go. And uh, all right, so we'll go ahead and talk a little bit about uh, its history. And uh, I did history as an undergraduate, so I have to start everything off with a bit of history on this. Um, so the World Health Organization actually began at the time of the creation of the United Nations in 1945. And this was an idea that was originally proposed by the delegates from Brazil and from China for a global health body. And up to this time, there had been a number of regional organizations of various strengths and uh, various capacities. So uh, the idea was not uh, completely a foreign idea. And under the League of Nations, there was a lot of effort to try to bring uh, various things together. And I'm sure you know the history of this as well. And uh, health was one of the components of that. And uh, there were three health organizations that were probably 
uh, at the basis of uh, thinking and experience for the United Nations. And one were the health, or health activities for the League of Nations. And many of those were dealing with uh, outbreaks of disease at the time and still there was a lot of concern about uh, uh, carrying tuberculosis across borders uh, with people migrating or moving. And then there were issues of typhus and a number of other issues. This was very much the time of uh, communicable diseases. So that was a concern. Uh, the Pan American Health Organization, or PAHO, uh, was founded in uh, 1902 as the Pan American Sanitary Bureau, uh, actually came about with the uh, outbreak of disease related to the construction of the Panama Canal. Uh, this was uh, established uh, then and uh, continued to play an important role uh, in the health of the Americas. Uh, so officially the World Health Organization was founded uh, on the 7th of April in 1948 and we still remember this day as uh, World Health Day. Um, and in the, uh, the headquarters being established in Geneva, uh, picked up many of the uh, facilities and the structures of the uh, League of Nations, which are there at the time. Um, so if we looked at what the uh, World Health Organization looks like now, on the left-hand side is their current building, <coughs> which dates from, from 1946, <coughs> sorry, 1966. And uh, very quickly, this uh, building became uh, too small to meet the needs of the, <coughs> of the WHO. And what's not visible in this picture are a number of uh, semi-temporary buildings uh, in the back, which I think in, <clears throat> in due course will be put together in a larger structure. And on the, the top floor is the executive uh, uh, floor. And if you're going up on the executive floor, uh, you have a nice view out of the executive floor. And uh, on the left-hand side, we have a view <clears throat> from the executive floor. I don't get up there very often, but occasionally you get up there. And, Immediately to your right uh, is the uh, International Labor Organization, which is an amazing, the huge uh, concrete building. And if you move around between the various uh, uh, dining halls in uh, the UN organizations, uh, I can say from personal experience that the, uh, the cafeteria in the uh, ILO is probably some of the best food in Geneva. So that's uh, something to keep in mind if you visit. And if you look just behind the uh, ILO building, you see the tower of the uh, World Intellectual Property Organization, <clears throat> which tries to keep track of, of intellectual property uh, rights and uh, privileges. And then the low series of buildings here is the uh, uh, International uh, Telecommunications Union. Um, then there's a building over here at Old Hotel. That's the headquarters of the uh, International Committee of the Red Cross. And then in the distance, you can see just the tip of uh, Lake Geneva and the famous fountain, which uh, shows up there when it's not uh, when it's not raining or not blowing or having a serious storm. And uh, if you go to if you go up to the WHO, uh, everybody knows the number eight bus, which comes up here. And when you take the number eight bus from uh, uh, from the uh, railway station or wherever you're staying, you meet all your friends and colleagues and acquaintances who are going to other meetings at the WHO and uh, you meet each other on the bus. Uh, if you look in the background here, uh, we have a series of, uh, of hills here. This is the Celef and this is actually across the border in France. So if you take the number eight bus going the other way, it takes you to the border. <clears throat> you walk uh, 15 minutes or 10 minutes out to the border. You can take a funicular up to the Celef 
and then hiding back in the background here someplace is Montpellier. So that's a little bit about the geography. <clears throat> but the World Health Organization was established as the first global public health organization. And uh, uh, this was a time when the ideas of public health started to become crystallized. And people started thinking about this as a, uh, a separate discipline from clinical medicine, although related, but with a focus on the health of populations rather than on the uh, individuals themselves. And this is not always a well understood uh, concept. But if we look back at the 20th century, um, this was a time of remarkable extension of life expectancy. And uh, trying to uh, tease out the various parts, we can look at uh, this extension of life expectancy probably as 70% due to uh, public health interventions, water, uh, sanitation, uh, air pollution, uh, safety in, in working situations, and probably only 30% due to medical interventions such as new medicines, new techniques, and diagnostic methods. <clears throat> so uh, this was a, the kind of events that were pushing the development of, uh, of public health measures. And so there was a lot of pressure on us to, uh, to develop this, and that was part of the undergirding uh, thoughts between, behind the original establishment of the uh, missions and aims of the World Health Organization. Now, more recently, the World Health Organization has uh, incorporated ideas of the social determinants of disease, something per, uh, pioneered by Professor Marmot in the UK, the idea that our social environment very much contributes to uh, our health and uh, our longevity and our uh, freedom from illness, and there's increasing amount of data to support this. Uh, the World Health Organization actually was an est established as a coordinating and consultative body uh, to give support to its member states. So it's not an implementer in that sense. There are um, UN organizations that are agencies that are implementers, and uh, an example of which is uh, is UNICEF. UNICEF is a very active uh, implementer of programs in, in various countries. We're just reviewing now uh, some of the work that uh, UNICEF has done. Uh, over the years in Iraq, and it's played a major role in uh, helping to stabilize health sector in Iraq during really uh, difficult times. And from personal experience, the uh, UNICEF was very much involved in the response, uh, the health response to the Rwandan genocide and did really a superb job at, at that. And other organizations like World Food Program are also uh, important implementers. Uh, International Organization of Migration, which is now a UN agency, is also an effective implementer. They're playing a huge role right now with the Rohingya refugees in, uh, in Bangladesh. Uh, so there are many uh, implementing organizations, but WHO is not one of those. And it has no jurisdiction within countries. So this is something that uh, people often forget, that uh, this can be, the WHO can be involved in a situation in a specific country, but only by the invitation of that member state. And there's sometimes arm twisting and other approaches to uh, try to become more involved with things. But uh, technically, there's no jurisdiction that uh, the WHO can exercise. Uh, so we go back to what uh, the WHO's functions and constitution and the structures are. And it has a definition of health, which it says is the complete physical, mental, social well-being. And it's not just the absence of disease. And this is a, a cornerstone from 1948. Uh, and it also affirms uh, health as a fundamental human right. Now, uh, in 1948, that was somewhat of a radical idea, but uh, I think by now most places uh, 
have accepted that in principle and actually are implementing policies according to that. Uh, much of what uh, WHO do, does, like other UN agencies, is to remind governments of what their responsibilities are for the, popu for the health of their population. And sometimes uh, governments uh, uh, lose sight of this. Uh, so this is a, a WHO uh, obligation as well. So it has an aim it sets out in its constitution, which is the attainment for all people of the highest possible level of health. And of course, this is a fairly vague term and uh, uh, often it devolves to uh, uh, what are the optimum things that can be achieved for a population given its resources and given its capacities. And so there's a lot of argument about what the, uh, what the highest level or the optimum level is attainable. But uh, that's uh, uh, pretty much consistent with most aims is they're aspirational rather than uh, being specific. There's a mission and the mission is set out to improve people's lives to reduce the burden of disease. And that also was a fairly new concept uh, in 1948, the burden of disease. We were just looking at life expectancy. We were not looking at disabilities. We were not looking at limitations that people have uh, that are caused by diseases which might not be fatal, but are diseases which uh, uh, seriously impair the, uh, the function of people's lives. So burden of disease has uh, now evolved to uh, uh, quite an interesting uh, discipline in which we are measuring uh, disability-adjusted life years, life years, uh, healthy life years that are lost, and so forth. So we can actually put uh, a monetary and, uh, in that sense, also a planning uh, uh, kind of uh, a metric on, on many diseases. Uh, it also looks at poverty level. We, we know we're surrounded by poverty, but often in the health sector we tend to uh, forget that and focus on specific diseases. And the other issue that uh, has been increasingly coming up is the access uh, to a responsive uh, healthcare system. Uh, and this is some, something that many of us in health systems spend a lot of time thinking about. It's, it's good to have access, but also uh, how do you get utilization? How do you persuade people to be able to utilize the services and, uh, and take advantage of what is available for them? Uh, many places have uh, in theory, lots of services available, but people don't have access. And so I mentioned earlier what the World Health Organization is not. It's not an implementing organization. And it often depends on governments and it depends on non-government organizations, depends on other people to actually implement the programs. Uh, a lot of what it does is to support uh, member governments. So, for instance, if uh, um, the World Health Organization has decided it's going to have a new program to adjust to address uh, the uh, issues of child health on an integrated basis, which they did a number of years ago. Then they worked uh, very closely with governments to take this program, to adapt it, to modify it to the specific needs of a country and to get uh, government support for this. Um, and then occasionally the WHO might provide services directly. In fact, they're doing this a bit more after Ebola, but in general, the WHO tries to avoid providing services directly themselves. Um, the governing body is the World Health Assembly, and uh, we just had a World Health Assembly meeting uh, virtual for the first time last month. This happens every, every May, and it's composed of the 194 member states, meets in Geneva, and there's an agenda and a budget that's to be approved. And the agenda, I've had a little bit of experience with this agenda issue, uh, and 
you need to start working on the agenda maybe two and a half years actually before uh, the meeting because there's so much cons consultation that has to go on and approval and sign-offs to be sure that uh, something is likely to be uh, implemented effectively by the various member states before you actually move to uh, putting it on the floor. And then there's the budget, of course, that needs to be approved. Uh, every five years, the governing body elects the director general, known as the DG. Uh, and this is uh, something that is a highly political uh, situation. Uh, there's lots of blocks of countries that try to be sure that their candidates, or the candidate they think will be most favorable to them, uh, might be elected in this situation. Um, and here at the bottom are three of the uh, most recent uh, uh, director generals. On the extreme right is Bro Brundtland, uh, three times uh, the uh, prime minister of uh, Norway, and actually did a very good job in the uh, in the leadership position. Uh, she pushed a lot toward the uh, public-private partnerships, and I think we're building on some of that work now, particularly with vaccines. And that was one of her interests, is to how do we build uh, incentives uh, for, uh, for the pharmaceutical industry to become involved with the international health uh, issues and uh, be a benefit to the population. So we remember her for her public-private partnership. And she's done a lot with global climate change since leaving her position as DG. Uh, next, we have Margaret Chan. Uh, Margaret Chan was the head of health in Hong Kong um, and during the time of Ebola. And uh, a lot of controversy about how well she did and how well the Hong Kong did with Ebola. But in general, I think the, the, the estimates were a bit on the positive side. And, uh, she was uh, in a position to uh, take on the... Uh, the leadership for two terms of the as DG, and I think basically she did a very good job. And then on the left, we have our current uh, DG, uh, Tedros Gabriessis from uh, Ethiopia. And I think he's probably one of the first uh, DGs that's not a physician, uh, but he's had a long history in, in public health, uh, was Minister of Health several times in Ethiopia and also Foreign Minister. Uh, and uh, like many uh, DGs, if there's a controversial activity going on, uh, they're always in the middle of it and uh, being accused of promoting various interests and so forth. But we also have to know that the larger contributors, people who put the most money into the function of the WHO, they have a big control over the agenda and, uh, and they often reflect their national interests. And, uh, that's just a political fact of life. And, I don't think we want to go down that road very much, but there's lots of examples of where big contributors got the UN, uh, got the WHO to do what they what they wanted to do, what was interesting to them. Now, the uh, the uh, WHO has uh, regional offices as well, and uh, one of the things that I'm sure all of you are aware of that every UN agency has a different configuration of its regional bodies. Uh, so when the UN was formed and set up its regional bodies. Uh, when it started with the Americas, it just more or less incorporated the Pan American Health Organization based in Washington uh, as the regional office for the Americas. And uh, I think generally that's quite done quite well. Um, you know, if, you're, if you go to the headquarters in Washington, uh, it's always very helpful to be able to have a good command of Spanish because English is a minority language in the Pan American Health Organization. Uh, although there are some English speaking areas in the Caribbean, particularly, and uh, uh, of course with, uh, uh, with Guyana, but uh, by and large it's Spanish speaking. But uh, 
the Dutch are also quite active uh, from the Antilles and from Curacao in the Pan American Health Organization. In Africa, the Afro Regional Office is in Brazzaville in, uh, in the Republic of Congo. It spent some time in exile in Harare uh, during the uh, kind of revolution in, in uh, uh, Brazzaville, but they're, they're back to Brazzaville again. Uh, Eastern Mediterranean office is in Heliopolis, which is a suburb uh, north of Cairo, a lovely office there, and dealing with some of the most difficult areas uh, of the globe right now to manage. Um, the Southeast Asia office, Ciro, is in Delhi. Uh, and when you start looking at Asia, you can see how uh, very nicely this is divided up along political lines. So uh, North Korea will be part of Ciro, but South Korea will be part of uh, the Western Pacific or Wipro office, which is based in Manila. Um, and that's a very active office as well. Um, so that's kind of the, the regional offices. And below the regional offices, um, there will be a country office. Uh, so even though the Western Pacific office for WHO is in Manila, there will be a Manila uh, office for a Philippines office for WHO as well. And so they're actually responsible for carrying out uh, the, uh, the functions of WHO at the country level. And each one is headed by a WHO representative known as the WR. Um, the regional director um, is uh, elected again every five years. Uh, in the case of, the, of Manila or the Pacific, this usually moves back and forth between uh, a Korean and a Japanese as the major contributors. Although China is the largest member, uh, interestingly enough, uh, it plays a role in a number of technical areas, but in the uh, Manila office, it's never played a major uh, leadership role. That might change in the future, but um, generally uh, the, uh, the Chinese have not been really active there. A lot of the activities in the uh, Pacific region actually are implemented for the, uh, the South Pacific or the Pacific Islands, and those Pacific nations have a lot of major health needs, and there's a lot of effort, a lot of effort to support development of their programs where many of the more developed countries are managing fairly well on their own and countries like Singapore really have very little interaction with the with the World Health Organization at all. If we look at the budget, this is the current budget, 630,000 million uh, for two years, um, done two years at a time, and there's an assessed uh, amount and then there's a part that's donated. And countries tend to donate money uh, for specific uh, projects that re respect uh, their or reflect their uh, their own national interests or their own strategic interests. So it may not just be countries. So you can see the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is a major contributor as well. Uh, UK is the largest contributor after the US, and it has uh, very much supported uh, many programs in uh, the uh, area of neglected tropical diseases, which I've worked in. Then we have other contributors, Gavi which is a big uh, program to make uh, vaccines available to low-income countries. So they're able to work in public-private partnerships to bring uh, new vaccines, which uh, still are bearing some of the development costs, fairly expensive things, to countries where otherwise uh, the uh, country could not afford the, uh, the use of these vaccines. And down the list, uh, Rotary International is interesting because uh, they've taken on polio immunization as an international concern. They're a major contributor to trying to get rid of, of polio. Uh, if we look at where the funds go, there's some that are uh, obligated funds. Uh, the majority of funds are obligated, so countries will say, 
no, we're giving money to control meningitis in the Sahel, uh, but no, you can't use that for uh, for cataract surgery in uh, in in Sudan. So uh, those are uh, obligated funds, and it makes it difficult to address emergency situations when you only have a fairly small amount of discretionary or flexible funding. Um, so what does the WHO actually do? Well, a lot of their work is uh, setting health standards. Uh, and these are put together under a wide consultation. And uh, recently I was at WHO headquarters uh, to deal with uh, river blindness issues. And while I was there, there was a big conference going on trying to set the standards of what is the maximum volume that you can have in your earpiece for your telephone before you start having damage to your uh, acoustic nerve. So that's the kind of standards they set. They'll stand, set standards like uh, uh, amount of heavy metals in water and a number of other kinds of, uh, of standards. Now, countries are free to ignore these, which they often do, but this is an international consultative process that puts together many of our standards. And they also make recommendations for health policy. And one of their big recommendations now are for, is in the area of universal health coverage. This is a major initiative now. Uh, and most countries are coming around in some way to adapt this to their own uh, economic and their own health structure environment. Uh, places like the U.S. Uh, regularly reject anything like this, but uh, I think generally this is moving every place in the world. And like many things that the UN or the WHO does, you know, we'll have to go through several cycles of uh, programming and so forth before we actually see this coming into, into place. Uh, there's a lot of technical programs uh, that countries need help with. Um, right now, I, as I say, I work with uh, river blindness, and there we're worried about a certain kind of fly, which is the vector that carries the disease. But in Africa, there are now only about three people, uh, three Africans that really are good um, entomologists that can actually trace the pattern of these flies. So many times uh, they need, countries need help. They may need help from other African entomologists or they may need to get people from someplace else. So some of the examples where WHO has done a great job in pulling things together have been things like tuberculosis, getting a standard treatment. Uh, I mentioned prevention of blindness. There's a big office for that, and they've done a lot of work there. Uh, control of hepatitis, another huge issue. Uh, standards have been set and uh, approaches have been put together. Uh, now we're dealing with these issues of non-communicable diseases. So these are the chronic diseases, the high blood pressure, uh, the uh, asthma, other respiratory problems, uh, uh, diabetes, uh, and so on. So as countries are try are waking up to this problem, and right now I've just been working on a paper from Ghana where we've done a lot of work in uh, controlling uh, non-communicable diseases there. Uh, how does a country put together a national control program to address these issues, something WHO is working very much on? And then other things that you might not think about as diseases, but are things that are big burdens of disease, and those are things like uh, road traffic accidents. And so uh, there's a lot of things that can be done to reduce those, and countries need to have programs that, uh, that can address those. And then finally, the issues of, uh, which we'll come back to, uh, talking about the control of disease outbreaks in a coordinated fashion. And you may not have heard of the international health regulations, or you may have since we're talking a lot about COVID these days, uh, but the international health regulations are something vested in the WHO. Many ways like uh, international humanitarian law belongs to the ICRC. Uh, so uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as we go along. Now here is the current 
WHO structure. And even if you were uh, five centimeters from the screen, you still couldn't make out this uh, system because it's a very complex one. And this is a major reorganization in March of 2019. And this reorganization came about after we realized uh, the major problems that had occurred with uh, the response to Ebola in West Africa. A commission was put together and recommendations were made. Uh, and one of the recommendations is to push the World Health Organization to be more of an implementer in these emergency situations. Uh, so I'm going to say a little bit about these structures, but WHO goes through this restructuring process about every five or six years. And uh, so uh, the organogram that comes out of it may not look a lot like the organogram previously. But there are some specific areas, and just a reminder of the size of the WHO, there's about 7,000 uh, employees, often known as international uh, civil servants. Most of these are scientists and health managers and program managers. So we have a number of areas here. I'm just going to touch on some of them. There's a science and research section, but this is not an area that funds a lot of research, not like NICE or uh, uh, National Institutes of Health. It supports uh, the science for WHO's existing programs. And many of us have been involved in doing some of those. And I think that was my first introduction to World Health Organization. And then there are other areas uh, such as uh, universal health coverage, um, the humanitarian, the health workforce. I'll say a little bit about professional training and accreditation, something WHO tries to do, getting an international standard for training programs. Big section on vaccines. Uh, not that WHO does much vaccine development, but WHO does support, as I mentioned with Roe Brutland, a public-private partnership to encourage the big pharmaceutical companies to make vaccines. And uh, we can maybe pause for a moment to say just a little bit about vaccine development. And this is a very complex area because the actual molecular development of the uh, vaccines, uh, this is a highly specialized area that... Uh, is done in various laboratories and increasingly a large number of small startup organizations are coming up with new approaches and uh, really unusual uh, ideas about this. So that's one element. <laughs> then uh, the other one, and this is something that uh, Johns Hopkins University has been involved a lot with, and that is the testing. That's probably the biggest part of things because first off, you have to prove that something's safe and then you have to prove that it actually works um, and that actually not only does it make the antibodies, but a third stage is that um, it actually can produce antibodies that protect people, not just kind of noise, but something that actually protects people. And then the final one is to look at what's the safety of this. If we did this as a mass program, uh, you know, is it something that's going to have side effects or it's going to be very straightforward? So there's some areas there. Uh, malaria has been a major killer, particularly in Southeast Asia. And um, rollback malaria is a major uh, WHO initiative that's been supported by many countries. And it helps countries to uh, develop their own malaria control programs. And uh, as a result of these, we've seen the number of deaths from malaria to drop dramatically. There are areas of neglected tropical diseases, uh, which uh, I've been involved with, as I mentioned. And there's a number of these that I would like to say they're really not neglected. And uh, many of us have been involved quite a bit of our life on these things. We say we never neglected it, but it made it a good uh, kind of advertising handle uh, to call it this, and we can lump a number of things together. And then, as I mentioned, the non-communicable diseases as well. Um, then if we look on the far right side, we see 
the emergency preparedness and response section. Now, World Health Organization has always been responding to emergency situations. So this is not, nothing new in that sense. But uh, after the Ebola, uh, people began to realize uh, what many people have been saying all along, that we're potentially facing a number of huge uh, pandemics uh, made possible because of our uh, globalization, because of our transport, because of our interaction in, in societies, and because of, in many ways, the consequence of having long lives is we have increased vulnerabilities in certain areas. <clears throat> so WHO worked hard on this, and they divided it into two sections. One is the emergency operations area, and another area is the international health regulations. Now, I don't want to get into uh, uh, international health regulations. Uh, we have uh, uh, Elizabeth as a solicitor, who is probably more uh, suitable to talk about the international health regulations uh, than perhaps public health people are, because there's a lot of requirements of what states are required to do. And I'll mention in a bit, a lot of this came about because of SARS, when we realized the major deficits in the way that we address things with SARS. Uh, so how does WHO do its work? It does its work with lots of meetings. And here's the meetings I've snapped over the years of uh, meetings I've gone to. Um, and, and basically, this is an opportunity to bring experts together at the headquarters office and at the regional office um, and to discuss problems and why existing approaches are not working and what new developments that we need to do. And it's a wonderful opportunity to work consultatively among scientists from many different countries, uh, organizations from many places. And so these might be the academics, they might be country uh, managers from various uh, uh, low or middle income countries that have problems with specific diseases, or it might be from uh, high income countries. And so uh, issues of uh, high tension electric lines and what that electromagnetic uh, field is doing for populations that live underneath them. It's been very much something that uh, WHO is spending a lot of time over the years uh, uh, considering. Uh, there might be topic experts dealing with toxicology of various things. There might be the implementers, the non-government organizations. And many of the things that the uh, uh, World Health Organization, in fact, the United Nations do, do is actually implemented by non-government organizations. And then there are the advocacy organizations. And advocacy organizations, uh, you know, are seen by many politicians as a nuisance, but they're really the drivers of change. And uh, it's been very encouraging to see how they're uh, increasingly being incorporated into the discussion areas. So here's a few shots of headquarters offices over the years and some of the meeting rooms that I pulled out of my files. Um, so then there's the area of standards and recommendations. I've already said a lot about that. Uh, universal health coverage, what's that minimum package? Uh, and then there's the issue of uh, tracking global health statistics. Uh, this is a real problem because countries tend to collect statistics in different ways. We saw that at the height of the Soviet Union when the rest of the world collected information on child health in children un, uh, under age five. But the Soviet Union was collecting information on the health of children under age six. And uh, that lack of, uh, of standardization caused lots of problems. And in fact, many people think that was done intentionally so there couldn't be comparison. But trying to bring these standards together and so we have basic information about the state of health in various countries of the world, sizes of workforces, outbreaks of disease, and so forth. It's an important area. 
Now, in the area of health systems, uh, health information systems are a critical part. Reporting diseases, reporting workloads, reporting activities, and so forth. So uh, getting countries to develop their systems in a standard way, that's an important area as well. Being able to monitor health systems and health services, and also to help countries with health sector reform. Um, and I would say that any given time, probably 20% of the world's health systems are going undergoing some kind of health sector reform. So uh, sharing the experience from other countries, uh, 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 guidelines from, from Geneva and other places is very helpful in this area. Now we're looking increasingly at areas of patient safety and quality of services, but we spend a lot of time doing that. Another issue has been the Safe Motherhood Program, reducing the risks of pregnancy. And WHO has been a major player in this, but uh, they also do this a lot with, in partnership with, uh, with UNICEF and UNFPA. So their training courses, their refresher courses, and so forth. And then I mentioned something about the curriculum. Uh, and here are a couple of uh, nurses from the uh, University of Jordan. I worked with them in Libya, and they were superb. But World Health Organization through uh, IMRO, through the Eastern Mediterranean Office, put a huge amount of effort into helping the, uh, the Jordan College of Nursing to develop a curriculum. Now, these, this is a real powerhouse in the Middle East, and this is an example for other countries, and it's also an opportunity for people from countries like Iraq or, uh, or even Lebanon uh, to go there to get their training and go back to bring those skills back to their own country. Uh, safe hospital programs, that's something that WHO incorporated from PAHO. Uh, PAHO has a lot of hospitals, or its countries have a lot of hospitals on earthquake faults. So uh, some years ago, PAHO put together uh, a program on how to ensure that hospitals are safe when they're constructed and how to retrofit them to be sure that they're safe uh, in the face of uh, other disasters. And this is a great idea. WHO headquarters picked this up and has now made this an international program. So here's some examples of disease control activities. I'm not going to go through all of these, but elimination of smallpox was one of the great triumphs of World Health Organization. And now we're always on the verge of polio elimination. Uh, and in fact, the, the, uh, the fact that uh, Nigeria has eliminated polo, polio from uh, Borno State, Muduguri, and these Boko Haram areas uh, is a testimony that uh, you know, even under the most difficult circumstances, things, these things still happen. Uh, tuberculosis, malaria, a lot of work in Ebola and uh, DRC, uh, and I'll come back to talk about that in just a minute on another slide. Um, and uh, we said vaccine preventable diseases and increasingly um, non-communicable diseases uh, going down the list, trying to standardize mental health services uh, with limited resources. And this is a real challenge because across many cultures, the understanding of what's mental health and what's spiritual and what's uh, spells and what's bad luck uh, really kind of uh, generates a a non-standard approach to mental health. And uh, WHO has done a good job to pull that together. And then one of the things I really like that they've done has been the essential medicines program. And as some of you know, we deal with issues of counterfeit medicines a lot. Well, the press covers counterfeit medicines a lot. But my concern is not so much the counterfeit medicines, but the substandard medicines. And so WHO has done a lot to try to standardize this, to try to standardize laboratories that can do the testing, to try to figure out what are the best buys so uh, poor countries don't spend their money on proprietary medicines that are no more effective than generic medicines, which are much cheaper. So just an example of that.
And then there's a regional level. So a lot of activities go on in the regional level. And this is uh, safe motherhood discussions in uh, the Western Pacific office. And I have these pictures courtesy of uh, three of my former students who are working in the, the Wipro office there. A lot of the same kind of meetings, but here we're working with countries themselves, countries like Cambodia, countries like uh, Marshall Islands and so forth that are, are addressing these kind of issues. What does it mean to us locally? How can we, uh, how can we do things in a common area uh, across uh, a region so we're following the best practice? So what we're doing in Samoa is the same thing we're doing in uh, American Samoa. And what we're doing on one hand, one side of uh, New Guinea is the same thing we're doing on the other side. So we're trying to build that um, uh, sense of uh, commonality and also to remind stronger countries of their responsibility to their citizens and increasingly the non-citizens. As we have large numbers of uh, migrant laborers, laborers uh, and as we saw in uh, Singapore with the outbreak of COVID-19, this is easy to slip off the, the radar People don't see the uh, health risks that populations uh, that are there as laborers and are not directly engaged with civil society in a country, how they're contributing and what their potential risks are as well. So another thing to think about. And then how do we take this right down to the country level? Uh, so here's an example a couple of students sent me uh, with a safe motherhood program. Uh, here we are in Vanuatu on the left. Um, and... Uh, one of the problems of newborns, and the reason there's so many deaths among newborns, one of the reasons is that uh, newborns tend to get hypothermic. They tend to be cold immediately after delivery. So a program has developed uh, called the kangaroo method. So here the baby is uh, attached directly to the mother's skin. So it has skin-to-skin -skin contact, and it prevents the child from, uh, from becoming hypothermic, and it has lots of uh, emotional uh, evidence uh, for supporting this for other reasons as well. So here we are in Vanuatu, and in the back we have midwives practicing this to explain how to do it to the, to the mothers. And here in the foreground we have two obstetricians. They're practicing it as well, uh, so they can explain it to the mothers as well. And then on the right we have a, a WHO program helping countries to deal with obstetrical emergencies. And they're doing a drill here for a, a simulated patient uh, with an obstetrical emergency trying to get everybody to use the same standard uh, of uh, good quality care in emergency situations. And then there are disease situations. Uh, on the right, we have Ebola. This is Sierra Leone, picture I took there. And here on the left, a picture from Malawi, uh, looking at an evaluation from an endemic disease, uh, the uh, kind of river blindness program there, working with the local drug distributors there. Um, and then I want to say a little bit about international health regulations. Uh, and these are the regulations that outline a state's responsibility. Um, and uh, these uh, have developed slowly over the years, um, and they're now uh, fairly explicit. So if you're having an outbreak of disease in a country, you have a requirement uh, to inform the World Health Organization. So what we saw with COVID-19 in China, there was a bit of delay about uh, informing the WHO about this. And part of it was, uh, I think, intentional on the part of local government, maybe not national government. And part of it was just the kind of chaos that goes around uh, the outbreak of any new uh, epidemic disease. So building an awareness, building a notification process, uh, being able to call on assistance from the World Health Organization. So 
just because you have an outbreak in Wuhan in China doesn't mean the World Health Organization can go marching in there and do things. They have to be invited by the Chinese authority. And sometimes it takes a bit of arm twisting to do that. Um, there's uh, control measures. So right now, WHO is doing a lot in helping weak and small countries to put into place some control mechanisms for themselves. And one of the important roles in international health regulations is declaring the public health emergency of international concern. Uh, so this is a big thing. Um, something that's not done lightly. It has a lot of implications. And there are some risks of designating an emergency too soon or too late. And uh, those all have political implications and lots of uh, accusations. If we look at recent uh, events that have led up to uh, the development and the uh, strengthening of the IHRs and the major revisions were 2005, and I'm sure after this, we're going to have um, further revisions. But these begin with SARS in China in 2002, and it was clear that things were not being adequately reported. There was not access to uh, people with the issues. Uh, there was not an easy sharing of data uh, and, and so on. So that's probably the, the beginning of things. And uh, um, eventually China came around to realizing this, and they've been a big supporter of the international health regulation development. Then in 2011, we had uh, H1N1. There was some criticism there. This was declared as a, uh, a public health uh, outbreak of international concern. People thought that was done maybe a bit too soon, and maybe it wasn't uh, as severe as it, uh, as it uh, should have been to declare this, but this is an epidemic that died out fairly quickly. Then we had MERS, which is also another coronavirus, uh, uh, started in Saudi Arabia, but it became a huge problem in Korea as it was transmitted around within, within hospitals in Korea. Uh, we had the 2014 Ebola outbreak in West Africa, uh, and this was a huge issue, and uh, the WHO did not respond very well in the beginning, but a lot of other people didn't either, so it's not uniquely their problem. And then, of course, in December, we recognized COVID-19, what, what became COVID-19 in China. Um, and then a little timeline about uh, COVID-19. Um, uh, so it was reported in China um, in by the end of December. So China had made this information available. And by the 4th of January, uh, WHO had raised an international alarm. Something's going on in China. Seriously, we need to pay attention to what's happening and it's you know, being uh, developed further. And by the 7th of January, the Chinese had done the genetic sequencing. So we knew what this virus was, and that allowed countries to already uh, begin developing test kits, uh, laboratory facilities for, um, for uh, measuring uh, uh, infection with this disease. So that was a huge gift that China gave to the rest of the world. Um, there was a lot of this uh, concern in the beginning about how much human-to-human um, -human transmission was going on. This is... Um, not a complex, but it's a complicated um, kind of public health approach to try to figure out who's infecting whom with contact tracing and so forth. So if you have a good health, public health system in place already, contact tracing can be done fairly quickly. But it takes a while to figure out what's actually going on. Uh, so there was a lot of, of misinformation, I think, in the beginning, or at least some, about how much human-to-human -human transmission was going on. And now we're even hearing out that... Uh, uh, there's probably more going on than we uh, 
anticipated. Uh, so WHO at the end of January declared this to be an emergency. Um, and uh, so this is a committee of outside experts that, that declares something to be emergency. And there's a lot of criteria. And among the criteria are issues related to trade and issues related to transportation. So it doesn't interfere with, uh, with trade and transportation. So it's not just about disease that's a kind of a criteria there as well. And then in March, WHO discovered, declared this as a pandemic. Now, pandemic is kind of a general term, um, and I think the actual details about whether you de declare something a pandemic are a bit fuzzy, uh, but I think this is an appropriate thing as well. Now, just because uh, we, all this has been declared does not absolve countries from uh, reporting information. Uh, so WHO is spending a lot of time collecting information, and that's a critical area to measure how things are moving, who's being exempted, and where the hotspots are, and where additional assistance is required. <coughs> so I want to say a little bit about the role of WHO in SARS and Ebola. So in 2005, SARS did fairly was was managed fairly well, mostly by the countries, but um, they had good support from WHO. So countries like Singapore, uh, particularly also Canada did a very good job with this as well. In 2004, many people missed the ball on, uh, on Ebola. Um, Ebola is an endemic disease of many forms of wildlife, probably mostly bats. Uh, so it's gonna be around there all the time and it confused with another disease called Marburg, which is very similar to this. Uh, and people thought, well, this is another hotspot. We've got it under control and everybody went home and then the whole thing blew up. Uh, so this is one of the things that uh, led the major reorganization in March of uh, last year um, to, to try to make WHO more of an implementer. Now, WHO played a major role in the Ebola outbreak of, uh, of um, 2018 in DR Congo. And this is the second largest outbreak, uh, and this was a real problem. So uh, in the beginning, here's just some pictures I snapped in Sierra Leone of uh, the Ebola outbreak there. Uh, and a lot of the time is spent not in these um, treatment centers, but really spent in talking to people, trying to get an idea about perceptions, human behavior, what the community is doing and how they're responding. Uh, so as of Thursday, WHO declared that the Ebola outbreak was over. Uh, and so this was a real triumph because the Eastern DR Congo was one of the most difficult ones we had because health workers were being attacked, a number were being killed, community had distrust, um, we had problems with communication, but it also spurred a lot of in, uh, kind of innovation that was going on. But here's just a, <clears throat> a couple of innovations that were happening. So up in the left-hand corner, we have the Ebola vaccine. So after 2014, um, <clears throat> a lot of work was done in pulling together a vaccine. It was fairly, it was not impossible to do <clears throat> because people have been working on, excuse <clears throat> me, on the, on the vaccine before, but they didn't see there was a market for this. <clears throat> so the vaccine was developed, and it's not 100% vaccine, but <clears throat> it really helped blunt the outbreak. And then something that was really clever were these cubes, and this was developed by a group in France. So instead of having these, uh, <clears throat> these uh, treatment units in which people had to uh, gown up in this uh, uh, amazing protective uh, gear, and the risks of those were when you took the gear off, that it contaminated the health worker. So now <clears throat> we developed these plastic cubes. 
and with a air conditioning unit and so forth, probably about 75% of the care can be done uh, from outside, even though the patient is inside this plastic cube, just as you see these laboratory pictures of these big gloves uh, extending through the uh, membrane into the, uh, into the uh, laminar flow hood or <clears throat> whatever research area. So you can do the same thing here. So this has really reduced <clears throat> the risk to humanitarian workers. And you can put one of these things together in about 72 hours any place. Uh, you can put it out in the field, you can put it any, in, inside an abandoned building, or wherever. But constructing a treatment center, wow, that thing took about six weeks to put that together. So uh, this is an enormous advance that came out of these kind of events. Um, so let's talk about uh, the WHO role in COVID-19 and then we'll be finished. <coughs> so um, the Global Humanitarian Response Plan, which is a standing entity with uh, in uh, WHO, this was uh, activated immediately to uh, contain the spread, to help protect lives, and to specifically look at vulnerable populations wherever they are. Um, and as we mentioned before, the strength of WHO is consultation and uh, dissemination of findings. So in early February, there was a high-level conference of all the heavies uh, in coronavirus. And a lot of research has been done in coronavirus because uh, there are many coronavirus uh, examples in this family. <coughs> and the common flu that we see in the autumn is often a coronavirus. Uh, a, a major fund was put together in March to support a research in this. So WHO moved in their way very early on in that. Um, and as we see on the right-hand side, um, our president, Donald Trump, is always looking for people to blame uh, for his uh, uh, inadequate response to the uh, COVID-19. And so WHO was a handy uh, uh, target because he accuses them of having played footsie with the Chinese uh, and not uh, stepping in and taking responsibilities in China when really that's not their role. Uh, so um, WHO has a number of uh, dashboards and uh, websites if you want to look at. Um, their data is maybe a bit slower than some of the other sources such as the Johns Hopkins site, but it's always a very thorough di site and it depends on site and information brought up by various countries. So if you want to catch up on the situation in various countries, this is a very good website to, to look at, and also a bit on the programmings. So in the last couple of slides here, I just want to say, you know, how has the WHO responded to date? Well, um, could the pandemic have been anticipated? Of course. Everybody knew the pandemic was coming, so this is no surprise. Uh, there have been so many books written on this um, in the uh, <clears throat> after Ebola, uh, the U.S. government put up a huge uh, effort in uh, global health security to deal with the next pandemic. And, you know, that was one of the first things that Donald Trump dismantled because he thought it was too expensive. Um, uh, so, you know, I think everybody knew this thing was coming. And the warnings were fairly prompt. Uh, when you look back in retrospect, uh, and there's several things in the press today about uh, there were some, you know, cases that appeared in various countries that were not recognized for what they were. This is a common pattern with epidemics. And so in retrospect, we probably could have done better there. Could more preparation uh, have been done by WHO? Probably they could have. But as a result of Ebola, a lot was already in, in place already. So this whole strengthening the IHR and the operational section for emergencies, that was in place. So I think we did fairly well with that. We, have to we also have to 
realize that uh, multinational organizations can be very effective, but they're also kind of cumbersome and they're not always first off the blocks when we have an emergency. Was China fully responsive with this outbreak and uh, what was the role of WHO? There was certainly some cover up at the beginning. Uh, this was not evidently by national level cover up. This was all local politicians who didn't want to look bad in front of the boss. But I think that generally when China realized the size of the situation, I thought they moved fairly quickly in their sequencing and information and data. And of course, like much data in the beginning, uh, it was preliminary data and uh, subsequent data turned out not to be exactly supporting that, but that's the way I think that science moves on this. So how about being, the WHO being over-reliant on China, the accusation that uh, Donald Trump and his friends make? Um, as, we, as we recall, we have to work with member states, but there's a lot of internal emails in, within the WHO saying they were not getting all the information they wanted out of China, and it may be that uh, the uh, director general was cozying up to China uh, trying to get get them to release this information. That may have been his technique, and maybe he was read in the wrong direction. So what's the WHO doing now? Well, what they always do, coordination, collaboration, a lot of work with trying to develop uh, vaccine approaches. There are probably 110 or 120 different vaccine potentials, and like many things, uh, some of these will never work out. Most of them won't work out. But uh, this is a way to be sure that one group is working on RNA uh, vaccine, somebody else is doing this, somebody else is doing that. So we can collaborate our findings and we can avoid duplication where it's possible. And also at the state level to be sure that we have effective programs in place and that we can draw on the experiences from other places. So um, just to finish up here, uh, we'll say this is going to be a long slog. And many people predict it's going to be 36 months before we're back to whatever the new normal is going to be. Um, we don't know what the new normal is going to be, but it's going to have a lot of Zoom in it. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, and uh, in fact, in, in my own university, uh, our graduate programs, we've canceled all our classes until May of next year. So everything's going to be online since May, until May of next year. Uh, so even if we can do distancing within the classrooms, um, many people would prefer actually not to come to uh, an institution. Maybe they like mother's cooking, or maybe they like uh, the fact that they can function from their own country and they don't have to do the hassles with visas and so forth. Uh, a lot of the science for the virus <coughs> is still being investigated. This is very much uh, learning by doing. So, um, and the, the press, has been, the scientific press has been criticized a bit in this respect, and I think probably justly. Uh, as we make new, new discoveries, there's a great demand to get this into the public domain quickly, uh, because a lot of scientific publications are conversations that people are having. Um, people find this, but then it turns out this is not always true, and something else is more likely to be an explanatory approach. Um, so we're, we're learning as we go along. Uh, the vaccine, I think we said a lot of that. <laughs> the manufacture of vaccines is a huge task. And what we worry here is what we call opportunity costs. So while we're doing one thing, we're not doing something else. So while we're working on uh, on creating or manufacturing a, a coronavirus vaccine, we're not doing measles vaccine or we're not doing polio. And uh, while we're doing one thing, we're not doing 
immunization of children who are at risk of diphtheria. So I think I can be fairly confident to say in the next few years, we're going to see some very substantial outbreaks of diseases that we thought were under control as well, because we've had these opportunity costs and we have to set priorities. And as you can imagine, lots of ethical issues to, to talk about here, which I don't want to get into, but um, there's a lot of things, not only in treatment, but also in how do we protect people. Uh, the WHO will certainly do <coughs> an after action review of how they responded to look at where the weak spots have been and where the strengths have been and look at how do we create a new organogram that will address these more effectively in the future. And of course, countries need to be open in evaluating their own response. Um, some countries are very good at this and uh, this is where um, the science has been separated from the politics. Unfortunately, in the US, they've become uh, interwoven and I think it's going to be hard to get a good evaluation that everybody will accept. Um, and as I say, separating the politics from public health science is always a problem. And no place is that any more than what we're seeing now. So here's our virus and I think I'll finish with that. So that's um, kind of a little bit longer than I had originally planned to talk, but uh, a lot of interesting things came up. Um, so I'd like to just maybe now um, open things up to any questions that people have. Okay, thank you very much, Gilbert. I'm going to um, read out to you some of the questions that have been posed while you've been right. speaking. You've certainly provoked a lot of thoughts. Um, what do you think about the criticism? A bit of a loaded question to get us going, uh, especially posed to someone so involved with the WHO. But nonetheless, what do you think of America, America's criticism uh, of the WHO? And do you think it affects the operability of the WHO? Um, yes. So I think that um, there is almost universal support of the WHO in the uh, public health community in America. And there have been countless letters that we've all signed supporting the WHO uh, and so forth. <coughs> so, uh, um, that's, uh, so I think that we're fully behind that. And uh, uh, the, the U.S. has been a major partner uh, with uh, the WHO. And whenever I go to Geneva, I meet so many people that have been seconded by various branches of science in the U.S. to work with the WHO. Um, so uh, I think the U.S. is very tightly integrated with the WHO. Uh, this is a political criticism, uh, trying to deflect uh, uh, failure to act uh, on the part of uh, uh, the head of state in America. Um, and I think there's a potential for causing uh, difficulty here. Uh, however, none of the other members of the World Health Assembly or the executive body of the WHO have supported Donald Trump's position. And uh, I think we're going to see uh, money coming from other sources so that there won't be any major uh, huge financial loss, although um, this is a time when we need more money and less money to be able to coordinate all of this. Uh, so I think it can have a potentially negative effect. Um, if there's a change in government uh, after our November election, uh, then <clears throat> then I think this will be quickly reversed. And in fact, uh, as far as I understand, although uh, Donald Trump has uh, indicated that the U.S. is going to withdraw from not only WHO, from the, but also the Pan-American Health Organization, <clears throat> I understand nothing's actually really happened. 
<clears throat> and uh, it's not even clear he has the jurisdiction to do that. So at the moment, it's uh, business as usual. Um, money, I think, uh, is still obligated money is still being paid. And then I think people like Bill Gates and others are stepping up to pick up some of that. So uh, there'll be some problems, but um, I hope that they're reversible problems. Yeah, and, and what you've talked about there or what you've alluded to um, in terms of the funding of a WHO is obviously paramount to its work. And do you have any specific comments on the relatively, you know, relatively speaking, I appreciate it's multi-billions, multi-trillions probably, but the relatively small contribution made by the EU when compared with what America and the UK put in? Well, we have to look at those contributions to say some of them are, are obligations uh, that uh, countries have made specifically for certain diseases. And uh, the UK has done a lot with um, neglected tropical diseases, with tuberculosis, with other conditions. And many of these efforts are focused on diseases that are a major concern in Commonwealth countries. And that's an understanding because uh, every country has its own strategic interests and the other countries do exactly the same kind of thing. Um, so I think where we're worried about is, uh, uh, A, that some of this money that has been uh, already uh, obligated or designated for specific activities might be reprogrammed. And unfortunately, that happens all the time. Uh, so we may take money away from polio eradication and put it into coronavirus. So, um, you know, there's priorities that all everybody has to do. And we certainly do this at the household level as well. Uh, so there's those concerns. But then I think there's a certain amount of new money that's needed. Um, and I think that we'll probably see some of that coming up. Now, when we see a certain amount of money coming from, uh, from the EU, we also have to remember that individual countries within the EU are also making their own contributions. So if we added all that up, we'd find that there's a fairly sizable amount coming from, uh, from the EU uh, itself geographically, some from individual countries and some from uh, the uh, EU formally itself. Okay, thank you. In terms of what you've just spoke about there, which is individual diseases, we have a question to do with progress or lack of progress on river blindness. Do you know anything about that specifically, what the obstacles are there? Well, I know a lot about that because uh, that was when I went to Malawi. Uh, that's how I got started, I think, in global health is um, I was at a rural hospital and we were in the middle of an area that had river blindness and nobody had done the epidemiology of this. And so when my wife said I was spending too much time at the hospital and I needed a hobby, then I thought river blindness would be a great hobby. And uh, I think she was thinking postage stamps or something. But anyway, this was, this was a kind of a very interesting area. And uh, so we have a very effective medicine called ivermectin. And uh, the manufacturer, uh, Merck and, or MSD in Europe, is donating all of this that's ever required to control the disease. And uh, they've established a committee that uh, oversees who gets the medicine and what are the indications and tracks the side effects. And so I'm chair of the committee that uh, oversees that. Um, so what we've essentially done there is we've eliminated uh, river blindness as a public health threat. So there's not many people becoming blind now. There are not many people developing a serious skin disease uh, or other problems associated with it. 
we haven't eliminated the disease because it's still being transmitted by the fly. Um, we're moving in that direction, and our goal is to totally eliminate the disease, much as we've eliminated uh, smallpox. And many of us believe that this is possible, and uh, likely we could probably do this if everything was smooth in another 10 years or so. Uh, this current outbreak has upset everybody's timetable, <coughs> and some of the areas that are affected are also in conflict area or areas with lots of disease. So we've made progress there. <coughs> we've also found that the medicine that we've used for river blindness is an um, effective component in treatment of elephantiasis or lymphatic filariasis. Um, so now the manufacturers, uh, Merck, have donated another 100 million uh, um, uh, treatments every year. The big sites for that are principally India, and uh, the South Pacific to some extent, but also Indonesia. And so we're moving in that direction. We're going to be able to control that as well. So um, I think what I learned from 15 years in Malawi is a lot of, uh, a lot of things happen, but some things don't happen suddenly. <laughs> and these are slow, incremental things. And so I compare where we are with river blindness now compared to when I was a young doctor in Malawi starting with it. And we've made huge progress. We're not there as a terminus yet, but we're headed there, and I think um, I'm very happy with what we've done. That's really good to hear. Thank you. You referred to countries countries uh, who are in conflict, if you like. We've got a specific question about the Yemen, which yes. obviously has you know a civil war, war that's been going on for a fair old time. Uh, how does that affect health in general in those countries, but also what the WHO can do there in countries with long running Civil wars. Yes, that's a huge issue. In fact, I was um, in February. I was in London uh, meeting with Diffid, and uh, there's a group of us that are wanting to do a mortality survey to try to figure out what actually uh, the burden of disease. What's the death been in Yemen from all causes? Uh, and obviously, conflict is one. But as we know, there's epidemic diseases. Uh, now, COVID-19 is a huge uh, problem there. Um, and there's also increasing problems with malnutrition, and I think the BBC has covered that very well. Uh, so about half of the health facilities in Yemen are uh, closed, um, and even those that are open, you know, it's hard to find competent, uh, well-trained health uh, workers who want to work in these situations. The WHO has a huge program there. Uh, a lot of it is associated with uh, essential medicines, uh, with uh, uh, building health worker uh, technical capacities with collecting data and, and the UN I think as a, as a whole this is probably the UN's largest in fact it's definitely UN's largest humanitarian program <clears throat> at the moment is in Yemen uh, and there's so many issues going on and as you know uh, the uh, north and the south part of Yemen uh, sometimes can work together sometimes they can't there's a general common ministry of health that's been tried to be maintained between the North and the South, <coughs> uh, although both the North and the South have their own kind of uh, health directorates in some way. Um, there is some kind of commonality that's being uh, uh, maintained, and certainly the C Central Statistical Office, which handles the data and which is what you need for any kind of surveys and any kind of uh, representative sampling, well, that's functioning more or less uh, as well. So. Uh, Yemen is a real disaster. It's a political disaster. <clears throat> and from the humanitarian side, uh, we're trying to minimize the damage. But we know 
the solution is a political one and it's not a vaccine related one. Thank you. Next question really concerns the interplay between national sovereignty of countries and international organizations, including WHO, but not restricted to WHO, which is, you know, a common uh, area for discussion. But the person who's posed this question is particularly interested in how we as ordinary citizens can access findings um, by impartial parties, including WHO, for example, to help us make more informed decisions as consumers, uh, but also as voters, of course. Um, if, if one was really uh, interested in making decisions around one's purchase decisions and voting decisions that are in the best interests of the world's health, uh, what sort of things should uh, be bedtime reading? Yeah, well, I'm not sure it's bedtime reading. Probably it'll keep you awake if you if you read this in in detail. Um, so that's a very good question, and sovereignty is a huge issue. Um, and uh, countries can choose to uh, ignore guidance and support from the uh, multilaterals, such as WHO or bilaterals. Um, they can also be leveraged in various ways. Uh, so at various times, we've had. Uh, emphasis on kind of neighborhood watch uh, approaches. So uh, there was an initiative a few years ago called the uh, uh, R2P, the right to protect, uh, realization that when a country goes into a major crisis, it's not in a crisis by itself, it's affecting its neighbors as well. Uh, and there are plenty of examples of insurrection that have been exported from uh, Sierra Leone to Liberia and from various places. Uh, so um, so there's a lot of concern about what regional bodies might have in trying to leverage uh, uh, best practices and getting people to comply with, uh, with recommendations uh, and so on. Uh, so that's a problem. But also, I think in our increasingly interconnected world, it's harder to keep outbreaks of disease and it's harder to keep uh, events related to oppression and, uh, uh, and, and insurrection out of the media. People know about this. And uh, one of uh, my goals in establishing the Center for Humanitarian Health in, in Hopkins was to try to document these humanitarian events and to try to draw attention to the public health needs of, uh, of, of disasters and crises in various ways. And so when I came to uh, Johns Hopkins, I realized that nobody was really addressing the public health needs in disasters or not addressing it in, a, in an organized manner. Uh, so that was one of the goals. And we've done a large amount of documentation on uh, health issues in, uh, in uh, Afghanistan, for instance. And a couple of weeks ago, I helped uh, one of the editors at The Lancet to put together an editorial on, uh, on health needs in Afghanistan. So I think we have a role of providing data. We've done a lot with Iraq and I was, uh, lead author on the uh, 2006 Lancet study on mortality in Iraq. And uh, uh, that got a huge amount of criticism. Uh, again, much of this was driven by partisan uh, and political views. But uh, I think in the end, uh, the numbers stood up and uh, we're okay with that. So I think that's a role of academics is to step in and try to do this. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to document <clears throat> the issues in Mosul in Iraq. Uh, so when ISIS uh, took over Mosul, 
I called up one of my friends at a university in Baghdad and said, Riyadh, you know, one of these days, uh, there's going to be a campaign to uh, retake uh, control of, uh, of Mosul. And uh, we need to be there to find out how healthcare was being provided and what the health status of populations were under ISIS and what are the health needs that populations have now recovering from this nightmare of, of ISIS. So <clears throat> we put together a team uh, to address uh, issues in Mosul. Uh, and one of the problems is that uh, uh, you can't do any kind of surveys in Mosul unless you speak with a Mosul accent. So we had to find interviewers that uh, uh, spoke with a Mosul accent and get all the systems in place, the ethical approval. So when uh, ISIS was uh, driven out of Mosul, uh, first from the east and then from the west, uh, our teams were there within a month, as soon as we had security uh, approval to go there <clears throat> to uh, carry out the surveys. And we collected, I think, some very valuable data that helps understand the situation uh, with, uh, you know, that conflict have imposed upon a population. But I also realized that just being able to document things in itself is not, is not really adequate. And so we need to be linked up with people who can actually uh, make changes uh, and implement the kinds of programs that are, are required. And now in that sense, what I've seen in, with a number of non-government organizations, uh, Oxfam being an example, Doctors Without Borders, International Rescue Committee, they're all now developing uh, kind of scientific or research arms. <clears throat> so they can actually collect the data that can be uh, meaningful uh, and can be a basis for action. And I keep good track of this because a number of my former students are involved in running these types of programs. And it's very gratifying to see now that we can collect the information. It's available very rapidly on websites and other sources. Uh, so we can, we can get a picture of what the actual specific needs are and what, what organizations are doing to try to respond. Thank you. I'm conscious, Gilbert, that strictly speaking, we've got 10 minutes to go. I've got a lot of questions to get through. I will let us overrun a little bit, but not for uh, a substantial amount of time. So I'm going to sort of try and whiz through some of these questions and cherry pick where I can, okay? So um, a, a little bit of positive feedback for the uh, WHO, uh, some warm thoughts from a participant on today who is a nurse about nurses' representation of the WHO. Uh, but she has noted that they are men. Um, I presume that uh, that's probably, unfortunately, a feature of lots of international forums is that they are overrepresented by men. I'm not sure about that, but I, from my own experience, I think that's probably a fair comment. And it's probably a fair comment that uh, that's very much in everyone's minds and we're trying to move that, change that. But anyway, I'll leave that up in the air. Um, how does the WHO work with charities such as Bodhisattva Sans Frontieres, especially in, you know, conflict countries, developing countries, etc.? Well, I think that's a very good question. I think before we get to that, let's just talk about the role of women. And uh, w one of the problems is that in uh, some countries where, um, you know, for various, uh, particularly religious uh, Islamic countries, <clears throat> there's a really serious uh, proscription about, uh, touching people that are not your your immediate relatives. Uh, so that's made it hard for the nursing profession. Uh, where this, where an interesting um, situation played out was in Iraq, 
because there the nurse much of the nursing profession was dominated by Christians who didn't have that religious uh, proscription. Uh, and then with the ethnic cleansing between 2005 and 2007, so many of the Christians had to leave uh, Baghdad, um, many of whom immigrated, but a lot of them went to the Kurdish area. Um, then much of the nursing uh, situation in uh, in Baghdad collapsed, and uh, now Baghdad is dependent on nurses being imported from India to carry out some of the functions that uh, Iraqis used to carry out. So there's these kind of local issues. And when we started addressing this issue in Afghanistan in 2002, we looked at uh, how to develop a community midwifery program. But we could not find women that had even finished primary school because of the Taliban's proscription on education for women. So it became virtually impossible to find the people that had the educational background to do this. But then, of course, you move the other direction. You move to the Far East. You move uh, in the Philippines, where much of the health profession is being dominated by women. So there's a lot of kind of local uh, issues in, in that respect that we, we have to be concerned about. Now, I said about that. Do you want to repeat the other question, Elizabeth? That I, that I yes, the other mention? question, Gilbert, could I ask you to keep your hands down, okay? Not okay, put them right. in front of your face. Otherwise, it, we can't hear as well. Thank you. In relation to charities work oh, yeah. alongside WHO, yeah. especially in war-torn countries, yeah, so that's a good that's a good point. So, WHO and the other international organizations, particularly UNHCR, will depend very heavily on uh, on the uh, charitable organization, non government organizations, to actually do the implementing, and they're known as the implementing partners. Uh, so, when you look at Yemen, who's carrying out the uh, relief activities in Yemen? Um, WHO may be directing, may be planning, but they're not actually doing a lot. That kind of thing is being done by on-the-ground organizations. Now, some of those can be MSF and Oxfam and so forth, but increasingly we're seeing local organizations, we're seeing Islamic organizations that are carrying out these activities. So, um, so very much there's a partnership in the field. Now, at the higher level, um, many times there are partnerships on policy. So uh, MSF may work a lot with WHO in developing new policies. Um, MSF is a very independent organization, uh, and they may not agree with WHO on various things. So there are some areas where discussions have never moved ahead because MSF has a different view about how things need to be done than WHO does. So, um, But in other situations, there are common policies that are developed uh, with the assistance and sometimes a lot of technical assistance from the various larger NGOs. Okay. Any quick words about the abolition of wet markets? Any, any, have you got any inside intelligence in relation to uh, what's happening on that? Are we going to see any hard law come out on that? Well, actually, there is, I believe, I'm, I have not seen it myself, <clears throat> but there is something in the international health regulations about wet markets. Um, and I think that, in general, the Chinese, before this outbreak, had accepted in principle that they were going to eliminate wet markets. But it's one thing for bureaucrats in Beijing to agree to it, and then there's also uh, agreement has to be done locally, and if you uh, um, try to enforce things too uh, strongly locally, then things go underground. Uh, so I think in principle, we've all agreed it's a bad idea, um, and even the Chinese agreed it's a bad idea, but getting that implemented, and also, as we saw with Ebola, getting uh, our dependence on bushmeat uh, in many of these places, wild animals uh, as, as meat, uh, getting people to uh, 
to shift away from that. This is a huge cultural change in many places. So we all agree it needs to be done, but you know, it's a big, big challenge. Okay, moving on to another theme. I'm conscious that we're not going to be able to do this theme any justice in the time that we've got left, but nonetheless, I'll throw it in the pile. And that is, of course, the role of investors in Big Pharma. Um, Their long-termism is obviously paramount in terms of research and development by pharmaceutical companies. They have their own commercial drivers, though. They dislike activism, is, is the watchword, I believe. Of course, I'm, it's ironic, isn't it, Gilbert, that the International uh, Property Office, or whatever you call it, uh, is proximate to uh, the WHO because patents, um, the expiration of patents, and indeed, um, you know, and then the generics can come on after the patents have expired. All of that area is very loaded, and it's all to do with money, is it not? Um, so... Where's your thoughts on that? Do you feel that uh, the right balance is being struck? And do you think the markets are doing a, a good job in, in protecting society um, by giving the right drivers to the pharma companies? Yes, as you say, it's a very complex issue. And I work quite a bit with big pharma in uh, some of their donation programs. And there are a number of big donation programs that are going on. And the one for river blindness was the first, but... Uh, uh, SmithKline Galaxo uh, is a big donor of medicines for um, for addressing uh, lymphatic filariasis or elephantiasis. There are other donations made for uh, trachoma. Uh, there's donations made for a number of the neglected tropical diseases, but also programs that address uh, the um, issues of uh, safe motherhood and a number of other programs as well. So these are done by Big Pharma, but it also depends on Big Pharma making enough profits so they can exercise their corporate responsibilities. And in the case of medicine for river blindness, um, the company made a huge amount of money as a, with this medicine as a veterinary uh, preparation, and they're still making a lot of money out of it. So they can afford uh, to make this donation to uh, the river blindness program. And the medicine for river blindness is made in Harlem in the Netherlands, and the company has um, one line, and this line is a two-story operation with uh, um, a lot of high-tech materials. It has one line that runs uh, um, seven days a week, uh, 24 hours a day, makes six billion tablets a year, and you know that's all being made available. Uh, <clears throat> I think that there's a number of other issues in the pharma world, and uh, the essential medicine program is, uh, I think, a good start for that. Um, increasingly, we're getting medicines from other countries, and sometimes the quality of standards is really low. Uh, sometimes they're out-and-out counterfeit. Uh, usually the counterfeit medicines are not the cheap medicine. Nobody's going to counterfeit paracetamol. There's no money in that. Uh, but they will counterfeit uh, anti-HIV medicines, uh, malaria medicines. Some of the more expensive antibiotics will be counterfeited. Um, and so, of course, Big Pharma has an interest in kind of controlling that as well, and they've supported it a lot in the efforts to deal with counterfeit medicines. But in the end, they're commercial firms, and uh, we have to create the incentives, and this is something Grove Bruntland did very nicely. Well, they have to, we have to create the incentives to make them want to exercise their corporate responsibilities. Thank you. And I think, I think, just if I may have the final word on that, that's down to government to incentivize them through the tax system. 
uh, and that's what I work on. But thank you very much, Gilbert. Uh, that was absolutely fascinating. I'm sorry we've run out of time. I'm sure we could go on all afternoon, uh, but we've had some very complimentary uh, things said about your talk today. As I say, the recording and the slides will be sent round afterwards to those that are here and those that can't make it. Uh, thank you for your thumbs up, for those of you who are in a quick thumbs up. So, Gian, can I ask you to briefly um, close the meeting? Thank you. Well, all I want to say is, as a chair of the association, I just want to say a big thank you to Gilbert for giving up his time, especially in the morning in Baltimore, to be, to be with us. And uh, we, we, it's been a really interesting, Elizabeth has already uh, said, it's, it's been a very interesting um, uh, uh, talk and discussion and uh, good questions. And I also want to say thank Elizabeth as well for uh, taking the responsibility uh, of being a host. And I especially want to thank those who have been involved uh, with, the, with the meeting. And, uh, and uh, Gilbert, thank you very much indeed for being with us. And uh, I hope that one day you will uh, make it to the UK and come along and, and please will join us with uh, uh, Plowman's Lunch. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and even a brunch. So uh, those who are uh, with us, I will be undertaking a further uh, sort of topic for the next, uh, next meeting and I'll be in touch with you. And uh, of course, the, um, as Elizabeth has already said, I will be forwarding uh, uh, the recording uh, to you of the meeting. Uh, and uh, I just want to say thank you very much for being with us and uh, be safe and be healthy and uh, feel free guys to unmute yourselves to say goodbye have a little clap or whatever you i can see you clapping like seals but i can't hear anything okay thank you bye bye everybody bye 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 bye, bye. 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 bye.